Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So thank you for uh, having me here, and I've been really greatly enjoying this meeting so far, and I hope I can add some more kind of fun for you today. So I have a lot of slides compared to all other talks, and I'll take full advantage of uh, being an astronomer. I <laughs> mean, wonderful images. So first one is not astronomical image. Um, said Dominic. This is one of our favorite um, image. We actually have that one in my kitchen. Um, I see him every day. <laughs> so now I'm going to talk about uncertainty and tension in astronomy, which, and I will actually jump over at least three or four kind of topics. So if I'm going too fast, please slow me down. And if you have a question that really bothers me, uh, bothers you, just raise your hand and that will be okay. So here, I would like to show you one of the recent JWST image. You're going all the way. It's Sears program. Um, it's a James Webb image. You're going to see about 5,000 galaxies. And you're zooming in to far, far away. Now you're going to see all different kind of galaxies. They're all galaxies. They're actually 100,000 objects, but it is a 5,000 galaxies selected for this movie. And you can see that they look different. They have different colors. Yeah, the nearby ones to us, and then we are flying too far, far away. In between, it looks like emptiness. There's nothing there. Well, some, some places, nothing there. Um, you will see that there's a very, there are some red objects. They look red because they're far away from us. The lights stretched out because it's university expand. Now you see the red dot, very boring looking. That's Maze's galaxy. It was formed only 340 million years after the planet. So 340 million is a really, really old story compared to our lifetime, but we are talking about 13.8 billion years of age of the universe. Now, remember our sun is about 4.5 billion years old right? Pretty young compared to the age of the universe. I'm going to get back to that kind of galaxy images. It's far. Okay, so I will talk about challenges in astronomical measurements because it's not easy. And I'll talk about the uh, atmosphere. I'll show something like exoplanet. When I say exo, is extrasolar planets, not our planet. But I'll also show you some very controversial thing about Venus, Venusian atmosphere. And then I will get to the point about we have only one sample of universe and what kind of problem we have. And then there's another tension, a lot of debate, tensions, even some astronomers fought like hell, I've seen it, the professors fighting um, kind of tension. And then we'll discuss, I guess, uncertainties and truth. Our lab difficulties, I have to really say this because all the measurements we make is indirect, except that we've been to moon. And we actually sent our probe to Mars, right? That's pretty good. Um, but most of the places, we can't be there. We can't really measure. And 
very interestingly and programmatically astronomic objects vary. The one that I observed yesterday is not exactly the same today. I observed exactly the same, I mean, object the next day, next month, they look different. It's very common, so it's hard to repeat. But we do repeat, and the light particles, suppose you are individual galaxies, and a photon is coming to you far, far away, but in between, as there's nothing there, there's not really nothing there, there's air. Something is in between, it changes how you look at me. The color changes. Something happens, so we need to actually learn about that too. So, the important thing is we can't control our lab. Too bad, but we can control our experiment. And we have beautiful, wonderful atmosphere that protects us from UV and X-ray from the high energy particles from the sun, but it gives us huge trouble. So we send our telescope out of the atmosphere, like James Webb, Hubble Space Telescope, but there's other way from ground-based telescope we can actually fix that too. But that is another twinkle, twinkle star problem. Right, challenges, so vast distance. We've been there on the moon, that's great. Uh, remote sensing to Mars, it's amazing too. There's so much from Perseverance. And sometimes we get free samples from a little bit further away. <laughs> free sample is good. Now what about the accuracy? Um, I'm talking about most of the time, factor of 10. We talk about orders of magnitude. Factor of two, which is actually pretty good, and I can actually show you one example. But we can also go down to 0.1 to 10% accuracy. That's actually good. So expect that for us, 1% is good for astronomers. So for the, I, I think you've heard about a lot about random um, uncertainties and systematic. I don't know Thomas has a wonderful 10 minute video about it. I each have recommended, I hope you uh, watch it. Random uncertainty, you can improve it by measuring many, 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 many times because there's a true random nature of it, it's not error. But can we do that many, 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 many times? It's kind of tough for astronomers. We, we do our best. But then there are also systematic uncertainties, like different rulers. If you got a wrong ruler, it'll affect all your measurements. So I'll show you some example about it. So uh, one example, where is the star? So all observations here, uh, there's uncertainty inherent uncertainty there, but that's not error. We observe this star once. Okay, we know where it is, it's right there, one. What if we have three? Now you have a better measurement about, oh, there are three measurements, but actually the better answer was in the center. We, we try to do that actually. Um, here we go, 10 measurements. There are more of them in higher probability. In most of the place, or the center of the sun is right there. And we can repeat 100 times. Uh, that would be great if you could do that. Um, 30 is good enough. But you notice that some of these points are outside high That's okay. That's random. Nature gives you. So we do see those points. If you can do that, that's great. There's something with the Gaia mission. We have we, we repeat to find the exact location of the stars and galaxies to tell the di distance. Um, so these kind of things, good. This is here I show you twinkle, twinkle star. 
But then, did you actually see there are two tiny red dots? There were two stars. It's called, we use something called adaptive optics. Astronomers and military use that in infrared or optical even. I can show you again. So, oops, this is the twinkle star. Atmosphere gives you this beautiful twinkle, twinkle star, but it's kind of annoying in a way. You don't know where exactly that is. But we can fix it if we can actually, in real time, fix the atmosphere. So we can do that, that's AL imaging. Okay, so we know tr truly where it is. But you could see what atmosphere does and give us this large uncertainty of we don't know where it is. But space solved the problem. So a lot of parameter measurements we made was improved because we have a lot of good space test observations and AO imaging and much better photon collecting. So there are some also systematic ones that I just showed you random uh, example of uncertainty, distance measurement. How do we know the age? You looked at all these galaxies. How do we know the distance to them and how do we know the age of them? Of course, there are um, uncertainty there. There's also instrumental effect. We use a different instrument. You need to correct the problem that is introduced by that instrument. If we don't, we are in trouble. It can, once there was a one, something was thrown to this last survey, long, long time ago, at the very beginning, like, once the software was producing all the same redshift, like, why is that? Because there was a gap in instrument that introduced a kind of a feature that the software identified as a certain redshift that was kind of fun in interesting sense. So now I will show you about systematic problem by visiting Orion. This is Orion Nebula. This is my lab, personal lab. I spent a lot of time there. The, the square that I show you is, I zoomed in basically, um, trapezium. They are massive stars. They are very young. These are like a stellar nursery. So when you look at Orion, you can sort of see that, oh, I'm looking at all these um, stellar nurseries. Very true. Different ages, many kind of nurseries, different environment, but you are seeing baby stars. But how do we know their age and mass and stuff. So this only plot, it looks not very interesting, but then, then in horizontal axis, that's temperature. We can measure the temperature by doing spectroscopy of individual objects. We did like 10,000 objects spectroscopy in there. But then there is a luminosity in the y-axis. Luminosity, how bright that is. And that's called HR diagram, um, Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Plotting this, we actually show there are a lot of, you know, to ignore the colors that was from my paper. Um, all these stars are very, very, very young. They have a disk that is still forming the planet, or creating material. The star is not star yet, it's a young star that's not burning hydrogen at the center in the core yet. But it's contracting, contracting, and it's going to get hotter. At some point, it will burn hydrogen in the core. That's when the star is truly born. But this is the baby star before that stage. I have this kind of um, lines over here. What are they? They are the models for different ages. So these sources are over a certain range of grid that tells us, okay, this must be a million or younger. 
But I cannot tell you, so okay, is it like a 0.5 million plus minus 0.1? No, some people try to do that. Uh, we, can, we can do that, but that's not right actually. And um, because we have inherent kind of a spread for physical processes, because it has a disk around it, it's outflow, it varies, and half of them have companion. So it can make our life pretty difficult when we decide the age. But age is fundamental thing we want to know and mass. So if you see the vertical lines, the, the, the dotted lines, those are actually mass. So you can see it well, but our sum is about what going to be here when it's baby. And it's going to evolve, evolve, and then when it's about here, it's going to burn hydrogen um, and change that onto helium, and it shines, right? So that is give, you, give us hard time, but basically, it's uncertain, the age is uncertain between, okay, maybe 0.1 million year old, 2 million year old, that's best we can do. Sometimes it also depends on model that we use. Model improve, they add more physics, and they actually add to actually include um, some of the observations that we make. Then it may actually shift vertically. So that will give us systematic change in age. So whenever we talk about young or old stellar ages, we tell them what model we used so that everybody can calibrate uh, what we mean. So one of my collaborators like to use a different model. He would say, look, this is a million-year-old cluster. No, I have to say it's a million-year-old younger. Um, that's because we were using two different models. But here is a very, very young one. That was one example. Now, in order to talk about this, then how far are they? Um, we can't really walk and measure. We cannot really use radar uh, like in our solar system. But the nearby stars, we all know here, we know Copernican model, we know the Ptolemaic problems. There was a question about parallax, if you uh, know it. It's like when I, okay, when I look at my finger and close my eyes one by one, finger looks like it's moving. Right? That's because I have the distance between my two eyes. And you can use that parallax to nearby stars. Nearby was not near enough a long time ago that our ancestors did not have really wonderful telescopes to see the difference. If they did, I'm sure they would have fixed their model. Um, it's tough. It's very, very tough. Look at the, the moon is about half a degree. Nearby star um, is a second of arc, okay, that what the second of arc means. One degree has a 60 arc minute, one arc minute has 60 arc second, and then one arc second, it's tiny, tiny. So even that is a very nearby star. So that is our near stars that we can actually see because it's introduced because the Earth moves around the sun. But we have a wonderful now instrument, uh, an emission space telescope, Gaia, that is measuring really precise um, parallax and proper motion, the each star has their own motion, um, to further away in our galaxy and even to nearby galaxies. So that's great because we can use that as ruler. Um, it's wonderful. Like somebody, uh, yeah, Steve mentioned the standard candle. So if we know also the, a candle that you can use, uh, we know how bright that is. Luminosity, that doesn't change how luminous that is. If the luminous object comes closer to you, you know the distance, and you know the luminosity, 
you can kind of see one group, so you can you can count photon how many are receiving, and then you can calculate the distance. So just you can use that, um, but you need to have standard candle. What qualifies to be standard candle? Not everything can qualifies for it. Okay, I'm not over time. All right, let's go this. <laughs> so we call it standard candle or distance ladder. Parallax is used for the nearby objects, but there's something called cephate. Have you heard about the name cephate? So it varies in a particular way. And um, Henrietta Leavitt, she, I, she found out that this periodicity, how often it varies, is correlated with the luminosity of those objects. It was wonderful discovery because that was the first standard candle we could use. You measure the how periodic the variability is of certain stars, that kind of separate kind of stars. We know what luminosity should be. Period is easy because we can collect photons. We can count photons and how they change. But then we can actually calculate luminosity. That is wonderful. So there is one standard candle. So we get photometry, meaning counting photons, um, and parallax. To even nearby galaxy, we can go to the nearby galaxy now. And this, you use this cephase. We try to find the cephase a lot, and we repeat that observation for a long time to find the variability, how they vary in luminosity. Now, that calibration needs to be done from nearby one cephase in our galaxy to Magellanic Cloud, this nearby small galaxy that we are eating up, our galaxy. And then we go to the nearby galaxies. But then there's another standard candle that we want, brighter one. It's called supernovae type 1A. Right, so we are made because there are many types of supernovae. But this particular one ha is predicted to have same luminosity and a lot more bright than cephates. You can, it allows us to go really uh, quite far away from this, um, our the galaxy. So it's far away galaxy. We can also now use time delays using some lens quasars, some uh, red giants. Uh, so some, some of the, this kind of the summary of the uh, distance letter. So from radar, from our nearby, all the way to some um, cephase or supernovae 1A or other measurements to both distant galaxies. So you can see the why I care about this because I mentioned this when systematic error could be a problem. And if, there, if we don't have enough number on that, if we don't have good observations of cephase, for instance, it'll mess, it'll add a lot of uncertainty. So I'll show how they change it. But I'm going to, before, because I want to end with the cosmology, our stuff by stars and planets first. Now, now we know how to measure that, and there are many other ways of actually measuring the distances. But we know the distance to the star and the planet, and now we are going to switch your mode to planet for briefly, and I will go back to galaxies. When you look at the star and planet together, mostly stars are typically million times brighter. So we will see kind of satellite, but actually it has a planet too. But when we know how when the planet should be in front of you, I mean in between the star and you, or behind the star. So when it's behind the star, when we don't actually see the planet, we can get spectrum, and then we subtract it off, and then get 
really low synaptic oscillation most of the time. Um, the spectrum of plant. Now, why is it important? Because we want to know what the plant's atmosphere is made of. Can we find biomarkers? What is it made of? So now I'm going into astrobiology. I jumped from cosmology to biology um, too quickly, so I hope you're not too dizzy. So what happened is that transmission spectroscopy, that's a starlight. We are over here in this spectrograph and large telescope. And it's a planet, has some atmosphere, maybe for this example, it has a sodium-rich atmosphere. What we will see is from this planet spectrum, we see some feature. There's a noise, 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 and then boom, there's a feature of sodium. But we are looking for something like ozone. <laughs> Hopefully, and sometimes we, we see a lot of water, actually. So that's kind of feature. I only show you one example from recent observations from James Webb Telescope. Webb Space Telescope is what it shows you in horizontal axis is wavelength, short wavelength, to normal wavelength, but you're seeing basically infrared light. And in your y-axis, you see the amount of light compared to something called continuum. So these are the features of carbon dioxide here, water, carbon monoxide, and sodium here, for instance. So we see the different features. This is great because we couldn't see that very really before. And when you look at each dot, those are the data. Blue one is more. Doesn't exactly fit over here, for instance. Look at that, there's tiny, tiny vertical lines that actually tells us uncertainty of our measurements. Well, we still need to improve the modeling here to fit better. But it's improving given the uncertainty. This is actually a very massive planet. I wanted to show you Earth like planet, uh, they tried. It's there, but it's kind of very flat, so I decided not to show it. But later, if you want, you can come and I can show you. Uh, we are getting there. We're trying out light planets as well, but it's very, very hard. Now, another highly debated, heated topic is um, something called phosphine in v Venus. Venus, have you heard about that? It's super hot, 900 Fahrenheit on the surface. There's no way there's life. But this phosphine they found is in the atmosphere. So maybe there's a floating kind of um, either microbial life. What about that? Life is pretty tough to remove. Once, four billion years ago, on Mars, on Venus, we expected there could have been life, just like on Earth. They died because obviously Venus got too hot and Mars got too cold. Um, but there was a discovery, I think I gave you a reading, uh, but phosphine is um, PH3, kind of pyramid-looking molecule. Jane Greaves uh, from Cardiff um, found the phosphine gas in cloud decks of Venus, and everybody was shocked. What? Really? Because it could be biomarkers. It could be biomarkers, but it may not be biomarkers as well. So. What happened right after that is just, oh no, that this is something called RMA radio observation. RMA is the best radio observation we can do now. This was too bright that there was an instrumental effect that you had to fix it. So they were already debunked right away. But then the RMA team um, released data. 
So once in astronomy, uh, we get the data, a certain time later, everybody in the world can get the data. It's yours to take a look. Everybody jumped in, and then some people who are really good at low signal to noise, very difficult observations, jumped in and said, no, that may not be true. So first they had to have an addendum after the calibration was corrected. And they still see it. Okay, they still saw it. I didn't show you the spectrum yet. But then somebody said, look, it may not be right. Uh, it could be uh, sulfur dioxide. Um, there is a, then they explained why this could be. And uh, since Jonathan O'Neill was here, I added this paper <laughs> about the plausibility of clustered photo <laughs> phosphides as a source of emission phosphine. So he has uh, some ideas. They were debating. They were working together, some of them. Um, you see that what astronomers do. Observation is there. Everybody jump in and try to verify it. A lot of people couldn't verify it. Some people did. And then they replied to that. There was no evidence of phosphine. Then, then the first discoverers replied to them, and why that is. And then they actually debated how different their method was about which data they took, which one they threw away, or how they fit. I mean, I, they're, they're trustable, very reputable astronomers, all of them. And then there's, okay, phosphine in Venus. I use a different wavelength. Different wavelength means there's a different energy transitions. So then, you know, may not prove or disprove, at least they tried other wavelength, um, and they didn't see it. Or, or at least the signal noise was too low. But then these authors went back to the data and recovered the light. Okay, recovering phosphine in Venus. So this is life. This is going to happen a lot from now on. You may hear that. So we, in astrobiology, we are trying to set up what we are going to do to prove it, disprove it, is it biomarker or it can be abiotic? So it's hot topic. But that is because if uncertainty of the measurement was not there, if it was high signal to noise ratio, meaning that the noise is very small and signal is really high, then nobody would argue. Unfortunately, these are very difficult observations, very challenging. You need to use the best team and best data. This was pre calibrated, recalibrated data. So do you see that there's a line? I mean, I'm not lying, it's there. It was a pole, that's equator, and that's about in between. So line, line was there. And then the, uh, this was another Sophia, which I actually showed you again. What actually you see is the data, um, you think here, and then there's a residual. And then there's residual, you mean, Kind of, there's a feature over here. I'm not so sure if there's a feature. Maybe. This is definitely not. It's, it's, it's kind of noise, 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 noise. So maybe a signal there. And then there was a one line, however, um, had some signal that, okay, maybe, but I would not say at certain. So it's a low signal to noise. What do we do then as, as astronomer? We will go back to observe again, of course. Another the paper, their second paper actually corrected it. Okay, this one was SO2, they definitely didn't see the sulfur dioxide, which another author suggested they may be confused with that. This is the phosphine. Okay, there's a noise, noise, noise. Something there, not, I'm not convinced, but it could be there. You cannot ignore it. So what it's gonna do, NASA is gonna support two missions. Um, 
we haven't been to Venus for the last 30 years, and we are going there again. Hopefully, it's going to be there in 2029, 20, 2030. Um, there are Da Vinci Plus and Veritas. One's going to descend down, and the other one is going to fly up. So we'll have a different kind of observations. We will see whether they are really there, and in, until then, I'm sure there will be more observations. Now, I'm going to go ahead. Um, I'm going to go back to the one universe problem. All right, thank you. Going back to now, from Venus, zoom out to the end of the universe. Okay, can you do that? So now we are back to being galaxies. So sample of one problem. There's a fundamental limitation of, of for astronomers about how we can measure, understand the universe, both spectral and temporal scale, right? Space and time. We have one universe, one sample. So I. Yes, you heard about something called um, cosmic microwave background. Um, that's relic radiation from Big Bang, right? And the best fit model for the universe for that Big Bang, and so far it's something called Lambda cosmology, right? What is Lambda? Why that? So it tells you about like it's okay, 95% of thing, right? We have tons of dark energy, we have dark matter. And only like 5% or less of them is like a visible matter that we can actually see that we call it baryonic matter. But they are there. So that's so far the best um, <clears throat> model. So the red radiation here, you see some red spots, some blue spots, there's a temperature. Some hotter, some cooler. Some hotter and cooler, you know how much different they are? Temperature minus fifth, like one over 100,000. Of degree, very little, tiny, tiny, tiny fluctuation, and now as a sign from 10 to the, this is the minus 30 second. The power is minus 30 second after the bang, and it, there's something with inflation cosmology. The inflation model explains cosmology really well, the data really, really well. So this, uh, and it tells you there was a big bang. Otherwise. Something called quantum fluctuations. I still talk to a lot of physics before me. Quantum fluctuation, fluctuations that exist in subatomic level when the universe was that tiny, left relic, right? Fluctuation. And what happened? That's, this is what uh, CMB, cosmic microwave background, we see. And then there existed dark ages. Cosmos, universe had dark ages too. And then there was a first star forming. Okay, you can see some huge expansion of the universe, inflation, and it slows down. And then here's after the dark age, the first star is formed, and about 400 million years, 350 million years after the Big Bang. And then we, from there, you know those tiny, tiny fluctuation in density, tiny from there, Stars grew, galaxies grew, and what the structure we know now all grew from there, from tiny quantum fluctuation. So, from inflation, tiny moon, to CMB, first stars, and the galaxies that you saw, we went all the way to the universe. Basically, you traveled from now far, far, far back when the first stars basically formed. So that's the observations we have. From this tiny fluctuation, okay, now that's where we actually came up. But 
Now, when you look at this, um, uh, we can actually, there's something that's predicting uh, cosmology, actually, inflation model predict them. You need to have follow this shape of something power spectrum. So we try to model, I mean, fit that. Okay, now let's go back to the, you know, it's kind of tough, but what we see is that blue dot with a vertical line, vertical lines on sun B, that's observations from Planck. So, okay, you see it beautifully, it fits beautifully to the theory, but then when you go here, oh, wow, that really doesn't exactly fit. We call it cosmic variance. Um, why it doesn't fit? The problem is we need to have, when we go back, Oops. to this, about maybe 10 degree circle, maybe about we want to have a quite far away, maybe 100 degree away, but we have limited size. You see that whole sphere is what, what degree is that? 100 degree, we want to get 100 degree apart about 10 degree circle, we can only get few sample. All right, we don't have multiple universe to measure 100 times. So the uncertainty is there, and large is, and we cannot fix it because we have only one universe. Statistically, too bad. There's a 1.5 sigma deviation from the model, and why is that? That is fundamentally very, uh, to me, I think it is very interesting, and to a lot of people. Now I had that there's something called Okay, I have to say, I always wanted to add Father Lumatron in right next to Hubble. There's something called Hubble Lumatron ball. So that, now I'm also going to ask you to hit the galaxies. You're moving away from me, or I am moving away from you. What happens is that galaxies, when we were, universe was small, they were together, right? Close together. But we are expanding. They're all going farther and farther away from you. What um, George Father Lemaitre and Hubble found was that the farther away galaxy from you, the farther away, is moving away faster from you. And there is a relation. That's a, um, that is the law that I'm going to talk about. This is the very first one, unfortunately, because it's from Hubble's. Uh, here's distance in kilometer per uh, second. Uh, distance is here, so sorry, a megaparsec. Here is velocity. So these were the um, observations at that time in 1920, 1920 basically. Um, the velocity goes, well, something goes H0 times distance. H0, is, we call it Hubble constant, but it's actually not constant, this rate, okay? Um, it's kilometer per second per megaparsec. And it uh, contains um, information about the geometry and so on. So the H naught in time I will show you. At the very beginning, 1920, it was big number. They were here. And when you convert that one to the age of the universe, unfortunately, it was younger than our solar system, and that couldn't be true. So the uncertainty was large, measurement was limited. But then you can see that it goes slow down, 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 to the hundred. After that, there were a lot of two groups, especially. They for like her and as a graduate student, I saw the bloody debate. Um, it was really amusing. That was that was almost two thousand. Even then, some people believe it should be fifty or sixty. The other believe it should be hundred. Where we are now, it's about seventy. 
Um, so that's, um, but at that time, they tried their best. They tried to prove that the other one's wrong. They tried their best to calibrate sapphates, for instance, with a variable. It was not easy. Uncertainty was always there, and there was a limitation. There was a, uh, so you can sort of see that we're sort of um, coming between 50 and 100. Do you see that there's differences? That depends on which sample did you use, which sapphates, which calibration they used. Now, here, since 2000, it's, ignore the uh, different measurements. What I would like you to see, the blue shaded area and red shaded area, and the time. Horizontal axis from 2000 and 2020, when uncertainty was large, they all breathed very well. So people were very happy. I was pretty happy, like, okay, they are done. No, um, when measurements improve, it became more, measurements were accurate. More and more accurate. We had Hubble Space Telescope, we had now Gaia. Best measurements, meaning that uncertainty gets smaller and they don't agree. Um, it's not as bad as 50 and 100, but it's still there. It's you know, about 70 and 67. It's not going to make universe 10 giga year, but it's probably one will make it slightly younger than the other. Do we ignore that? Ah, we are happy about it. No, I mean, I can do that because I'm, I'm not a cosmologist, but that's not what Kepler did when he saw eight art million of difference from the model. That doesn't really bother him, and he found a way to go old. So that, because you know, Kepler could do that because of Tico Brahe had wonderful data. Before that, the uncertainty was large, but you know, there was no difference. We cannot, you know, it bothers us. This is our tension now. The late, you know, distance letter that I explained to you, um, that route has this okay, well, half of the bridge, and there are various measurements. Okay, one is the sapphate, or something called the tip of bridge on French and major some other variable. But, so look at this, there's a middle lane over here, 73, and this uh, from measurements, with an error bar, that is a measurement uncertainty. So basically an average. This is all using the late uh, universe. That's, that's the value. But then what about the next early route and different uh, measurement using early universe observations? Like barrier, something like barrier with uh, acoustic fluctuations and some big bang nucleus synthesis model. And we saw like, the um, cosmic microwave background. And there are a couple of other measurements. So these are the different measurements. You see that uncertainty is very, very small. Very accurate. But when you combine them, it doesn't mean. So that. Uh, is it 73 or 67.4? Plus minus some number. The tension is between four sigma, meaning sigma is a standard deviation, or six times that. And it's there. We need to, why is that? So this boring plot, I plotted here to show you one is here, one is over there, right? Is there's a distinction, the difference between one thing that Adam Rees, and then one of the um, reading I gave you, he proposed, I mean, astronomers will work on it, is with, there's one more neutrino, neutrino effective number is not three, but if it's four, they can explain that. If we can change physics <laughs> a little bit, tweak it, um, but this is the observation we have. 
in order to explain their observation, they agree that's where theoretical physicists or observers, they all work together. And we will see where it's going. Thank you. Almost done. So here is the discussion. Uh, I want to do that, but before that, I wanted to show snowy um, Tucson as well. And most beautiful, the moment of all kind of moment of Frangelico in San Marcos in Florence. If we go to, you go to Florence, make sure you visit there. There was nobody. I was, the only, I was alone most of the time, and it was awesome. Um, we had St. Dominic. So I will go back, and here I think I will leave my last slide. Thank you. Yeah, I had two questions. One is just, why, why is H0 not, not a constant since it's not a constant? It's a kilometer, it's a velocity in certain distance, right? H0 actually, think about it's it. Uh, yeah, it's not just number, it has a unit. It's a velocity per certain distance, right? Yeah, and um, there is like uh, Friedman, the metro, and some equation, we actually have time difference there too. So the constant actually uh, has that counted. So it's not exactly just number. Normally when you say constant, it's a constant. There's no unit. But this one has unit. Kilometer per second per megaparsec. And my, my other question then is, um, so in the, in the article that, you, that includes this thing, they say that uh, the age of the universe is known with something like 1% accuracy since 2018. But then at the end says that uh, if a different, if one of these measurements is right, then the universe might be a billion years younger. Uh, well, but that's more than one percent. Accuracy so, is one percent. So, so what, what about systematic yeah. difference? So the measurements. So what's the difference between the? Uh, oh yeah, the measurement the method. Accuracy and how oh, far so, off we could be. Oh, um, so. For instance, I can measure the size of this room, horizontal size, many, many, many times, and I make it really, really accurate, right? But if I use a wrong ruler, it would be off by one centimeter all the time if it was wrong by one centimeter. It's kind of simple. But it's not that simple for this. But what if you're missing a physics? Are we missing, we're introducing you know, some systematic there. So even if our accuracy is really good, systematically it could be wrong. Yeah. Um, thank you, Dr. Kim, for uh, this, this great talk. Uh, uh, go Wildcats. I love the... Uh, Wildcats. Uh, He's from <laughs> University of Arizona. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, the, I guess it's, it's very Anyway, my, my question is about the discrepancies between the estimates of the H0. Um, can you go back to the slide where you showed the discrepancies? This one? Between, uh, or? The, the other. This one. This one yeah. yeah. It seems to me that I feel like it, perhaps this is related to the idea of like the, the bias variance trade-off that when you have uh, 
when you fit the models to the data, right? Like if there's if the variance is high, then you have lower bias versus when the variance is very low, then you have like uh, higher biases. Um, so I guess like I'm just wondering, is there a way to um, I don't know, like minimize both the variance uh, and bias at the same time. I am not a cosmologist. However, um, what I know here is the bias. As far as I know, the bias is not very obvious. That's the thing that we are getting into. If if you want that to agree, that is something like effective neutrino number should change. The Planck measurements bias. As far as I know, it's not introducing that difference. Okay. Yeah. So people are thinking that something more fundamental is missing. We don't understand some part of the universe, although we still don't know 95% of the universe. Um, it still fit. It fit a lot of observations, right? This doesn't. So yeah, as an observer, I think there's something that we need to discover. We are telling. Everyone, especially theorists, particle physics says we need to. There is neutrino maybe missing. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. So, two questions. The first one is the first observation, the blue, let's say the blue one, is a, if I'm not wrong, is a top to bottom measure. What I mean is it uses cosmological time. Okay? Which one uses, what I mean is the distance ladder goes from bottom to top. So you start with parallax, and then you go to separates, and then you go to the next scale. While the other one, you are using a cosmological parameters to right. the lambda scale. Right. Right. So you have two different approaches to scale. Right. So, that's, so there, is, there is a special difference there. Mm -hmm. So the second one is, and I have been asking this, so lambda CDN as a solution for the, from the relativity questions assumes that the solution is invariant, it has some, some invariance in, in homogeneity, in isotropy, etc., etc., etc. Are those hypotheses uh, being tested? Yeah, I, that's, I, that's why I, guess I think so. I think they, have, they try to fit that. But that could not explain the whole difference, even if they were there. But that's what I read. I mean, what I, that I, I was in the lecture. For that, because I did not make that measurement myself. But the models, uh, that was what one of the model is, was is being tried. But it could not explain this difference. And the only difference they, from the, uh, they made was the effective um, neutrino number that could make huge difference. It could not completely only. When you say neutrino number, you mean the number of neutrinos, do you? It, Yes, yes, effectively, you mean yes. like three as opposed to four? Well, if, if it's not instead of three, if it, there are four, that would explain this difference. That's what, uh, yeah, I don't know. But that's what other risks suggest. What happens is the existence of the volume, you know, the sterile neutrinos. So yeah. you have what they are talking about is you have reactive. But that was pretty, a pretty fringe hypothesis. But it hasn't been, you know, I have, since I'm graduate school, they have been arguing about it. And they say it's dead. And the next year, it's it back. comes back from yeah. the <laughs> Yes. So something you said earlier on was that the age was it. Mm -hmm. I think a fundamental thing you wanted to know. And I want to ask if you really meant that, because I would think that you know your solar model is based on particle physics, nuclear physics, and gravitational physics, which has some, some parameters. 
Are those things the things you want to know fundamentally? And the age is something that's derived quantity from? Right, derived from there. Right. So the what happened here, uh, the caveat is that I did not have time to explain. Zero point of when does that, there's a cloud and dust gas cloud, when does it start collapsing? Well, every theorist have a different zero point. So that's systematic difference of age. So based on this model, it's about a million year old, but then the other one could be 1.5 million year old. So when we try to say that trapezium stars in Orion, at the center is younger than those stars in outside, we can say that difference in the same using the same model, but we don't want to mix up different model. Basically, you're very right. So there is a we um, when the physics we have a stellar model, stellar evolutionary model, uh, and in, for the young ones we have a Hayashi model, and it explains beautifully how they should be moving from in the HR diagram, and we use that to fix um, their age. However, we still have that zero point problem of the age. There is another question. Um, I want your opinion on this evolution of phosphine. Um, how, I, mean, the, I think the sociology of the field does reflect on what you are asking. And in your field, how far do we go to test things that work versus spinning tails about something that might not work? In the first case, it's rather tedious work, and it often confirms what we already know. In the other side, it's, it's, it's exciting. It gets you jobs and it's profitable in that sense. Well, I think most of the people, uh, what I believe is my thought. Job is important, yes. Uh, but <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would like to go to the what is what I think it is maybe truth the better. I, so once, do you have one minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was a graduate student, my advisor asked me to work on neutral star. Okay, so I said, no, I want to work in Youngstar. <laughs> but there was this neutral star we found it in Youngstar cluster. Okay, that neutral star was so bizarre that it didn't fit any model. It had to be quartz star. So NASA wanted to make it, wow, this is amazing, let's make a press release. And my advisor said, no, I have two more observations coming in different wavelength, and I need to see that right data to fit, otherwise I refuse to say anything. So they, Went to someone else because the data was public, was my advisor's data. So someone else went for it and then made press release. Okay, too bad. But then my advisor waited long for time, took some time to do better data reduction and modeling. Boom, figured out it was really small, but it was a still neutral star. I think that's more important than having glorious fame. I did not detect. Any alien, for instance, for instance, or it wasn't weird object that could give me pain. No, I don't think that is right. You need to do something. Data tells you something, then you should believe it, and that's what Kepler did, and that's what our ancestors did too. A lot of them, good scientists, all did. And that's where I think, personally, as Catholic, um, believe that that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what what God wants me to do. Yes. Is it possible to have some constant changes? I mean, because one, one was like, you already said, early, early measure of the... Oh, very early one? It was like 600? 
Yeah, the other one is, is, is it was because the data was bad from earlier in the universe. No, but but one one set of measurements are from earlier in the universe. Oh, you mean the, the other, other universe one? And the other ones are from later in the universe. So could the Hubble constant be changing? Isn't that a? Well, if there is one more neutrino, they could meet. Well, I mean, uh, well, well, yeah. particle physics. Well, I would like to hear. H yeah. not is oh. the derivative of something at our time. Yes, it's it in our changed. time. It has changed. So it's only a constant from our perspective. Uh -huh. so it it's not constant. It's a derivative of something yeah. that we measure. That the not means now. Yeah. Okay. That zero down there, it so means now, but it changes time, right? But we know that we have a complex equation that I don't want to share with you. <laughs> but it's um, even then, it doesn't fit. Right now, it doesn't fit. The bridges are not meeting, and you don't want to drive there. <laughs> <laughs> But you will meet, I hope. It will be so good if there will be another neutrino. <laughs> I don't know about that, but we still have time for a question. When you had the slide going through the history of the universe, can you explain why there are full universal changes? It does. So the, the, the initial expansion after the quantum fluctuation and then why does it slow down? Why does it speed up? Oh, that's the what the inflationary um, uh, cosmology will, they will tell you. At the very, very, very beginning, it was super dense and hot, but it gets cooler and it gets less density. And then there is a, some density. If you go beyond that, it will slow down, basically. And it's cooler. Cooler means that's where the materials. I mean, we already have some kind of area that is more dense than the other. Will finally collapse and form something. So that is uh, where it's a density and temperature, and then the model basically predicted it slow down. So the inflation was only at the very beginning when it was super hot and dense. The universe was in subatomic scale, really, really tiny. And it, boom, got out, right? And then once it gets cooler, it will just kind of get slower. What's the reason for the initial? Uh... Big Bang? I don't know what happened to Big Bang. <laughs> But it's really cool to think that um, Big Bang was, it was so dense and hot, right? And we don't know, we don't know I think. Well, the inflation, right? Inflation happened. Uh, that's, the inflation, they always explanations, the ad hoc explanations. Well, I don't, tend, I don't go back to the time. Um, I, I, I don't think I can do that. We can do that in animation. So now, what do you think? <laughs> well, Astronomers, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.